Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hi, folks. It's Mike. <clears throat> and of course, it's not for the truth. And uh, you do some reading in scripture. And uh, probably, if I have energy, listen to some uh, uh, of the comments and interviews from Charlotte Ezerby, uh the Miseducation of America, unfortunately, next to the disinformation agent himself. Uh, well, misinformation agent, and that would be uh, what's his name, Alex Jones. I haven't listened to him so long. So I think it's about like two minutes like that would be this and bring up the Jesuits in Rome. All of the, the issues. But he does bring up some of them. I guess the rest of it is left up to us. Um, I'll start out by reading some scripture here. And I was asked if we're going to do a fellowship this evening, but I really don't want to. Um, just tired. And I really don't, um, I don't know, I just want to hear the scriptures and hear somebody else who's got some experience in the issue. Um, maybe this evening I might even start to, to play a uh, discussion, a uh, debate between Matt Slick and uh, Sean McCraney about uh, Tulip. And I find them very interesting. They're both of Ben's points of view. It's kind of hard to argue, really, at the end of the day, when you look at Tulip, honestly, uh, without uh, religious lenses. The debate, really, the principles of it, but they are man it is a man made system. <clears throat> Therefore, it's always, as one studies the Word of God, I'm putting my faith in, in my Lord, Savior Jesus Christ, and crucified along with the Scripture. and uh, that's the path I'm going. The traditions of men always get spoiled, rotten, because men vault. So, forever it's worth you. For I see things now I could change six months down the road, and as many times I have, this journey to find the truth. So, um, it's already April the 2nd. Well, Chapter six of uh no chapter seven of Proverbs My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee, keep my commandments and live. My law as the apple of thy thine eye, bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart, say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman that they may keep thee from a strange woman, 
from the stranger which flattereth with her words. It's wise wisdom, believe me. I've destroyed my life this way. <laughs> for, for at the window of my house I locked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding. Passing through the street near her corner, he went the way of her house. In the twi- uh, twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, and behold, there met him a woman with a tire of that harlot and subtle in heart. And she is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now she's without. Now in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. Now, I've never been with a prostitute, but women have certainly behaved that way. And I wasn't much better, so. Uh, so she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Therefore come, and I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I have from thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works of fine linen of Egypt. I have preferred my bed, perfumed my bed, with mirth, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love. Until the morning, let us solace ourselves with loves. For the good man is not at home, he has gone a long journey. He had taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway, as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or a fool to keep to the correction of the stocks. Till a dark streak through her liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths, for she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Chapter 8 of Proverbs. Doth not wisdom cry? Understanding put forth her voice. She standeth in the top of high places. By the way, in the places of the paths, she crieth at the gates, and at the entries of the city, and the coming in at the doors. Unto you, O man, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O ye simple, understand wisdom, ye fools. 
be ye of understanding heart. Here, for I will speak of excellent things. The opening of my lips shall be right things. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing forward and perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth, write to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, not and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. I, wisdom, wisdom dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. Counsel is mine, sound wisdom. I am understanding, I have strength. By me kings reign and princes decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. Sounds like God here, doesn't it? My my fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold. My revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will find their treasures. That I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning forever the earth was. When there were no depth, depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest highest parts of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set compass about upon the face of the depth, excuse me. When he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the foundation of excuse me, the fountains of the deep. <clears throat> Where I get foundations. When he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment when he appointed the foundations of the earth so that's foundations of the earth then I was by him as one brought up with him I was Daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth. My delights were with the sons of men. Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. 
Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, and watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso findeth me, findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me, wrongeth his own soul, all they that hate me love death. That's a strong statement. Chapter 9. Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewed out her seven pillars. She hath killed her beasts. She hath mingled her wine. She hath also furnished her table. She hath sent forth her maidens. She crieth upon the highest places of the city. Whoso is simple, let him turn and hit to hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I mingle. Forsake the foolish, live and go in the way of understanding. He that reproveth the scorners, the scorner getteth Getteth to himself shame. He that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. For by me thy days shall be multiplied, the years of thy life shall be increased. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. But if thou scornest, thou alone shalt bear it. A foolish woman is clamorous, she is simple, knoweth nothing. For she sitteth at the door of her house, on the seat in the higher in the high places of the city, to call passengers who go right on their ways. Whoso is simple, let him turn to Heather. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Stone waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he knoweth not that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of hell. That was chapter 9 of Proverbs. I'll go back into John. If I'm not mistaken, we did manage, was it yesterday? Um, I think we've got to Chapter 7. I think we got through it. I don't think we actually got through it. Did I get through it? Ah. I'll just read it again. I was getting so interrupted yesterday by my active four-and-a-half-year-old boy. Chapter 7 of John. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee 
for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brother therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. What do we mean, brother, the worlds cannot hate you? And then another verse says, they will hate you because it's his name's sake. Ye, go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode till in, in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much mourning among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth, deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast of, of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knowest this man letters, having never learned? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keepeth the law? Once again, none of you keepeth the law. And that includes people today. Isn't that interesting? Why go ye about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marveled. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcision you circumcise, and, on, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receiveth circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, and ye anger at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment.
Then said some of the of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit that we know this man whence he is. But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple, as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am with him, and he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him, and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? And the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me. Where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go, that we will not find him? Will he go unto the, disper go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles, and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said? Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. And the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me, and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David, and out of the town of Bethlehem, whence David's was? So there was a division, as usual, among the people because of him. And some of them would, not wouldn't, would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said unto them, why have ye not brought him? And the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them to the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Had any of the rulers of or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus said unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, 
and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. And Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst. And they said unto him, and they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me hath not he that followeth me hath not hath not walked hath not walked in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And the Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I know whence I come and whither I go. But ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law, that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, ye cannot come. 
Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself, because he saith, Whither I go, ye cannot come? And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, and I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus said unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have, I have many things to say and to judge of you. But he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then Jesus said unto those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make thee free. And they answered him, Be Abraham's seed, we be Abraham's seed, were never in bondage, were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? And Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant, servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are up to Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto him, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me. A man that hath told you the truth which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye, do, ye will do. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is not truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not, well, that thou art the Samaritan, a Samaritan, and hast a devil. And Jesus answered, I have not a devil, and I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. I speak not of my own glory. There is one that seeketh and judges. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my sayings, he shall never taste the death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his sayings. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. Hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And Jesus passed by, and he saw a man which was blind from birth, from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sin, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoke, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam.
Dylum, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. And the neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam, or Siloam, I think it's Siloam, and washed, and washed. And I went and washed and received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was washed, was blind, excuse me, not washed, was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Mm. that full the corner is pinched. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight, and he said unto them, He put clay upon my eye, mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? Oh, there's that old Sabbath day again thing. Everybody always wants to go back to the law, don't they? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him, that he has opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he not see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes? We know not. He is of age, ask him, and he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already. That if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Sounds an awful lot like religious political devilment. Therefore said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind. Isn't that interesting? As of age, yes, very profound. And said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, 
that whereas I was blind, now I see. Thank you, Jesus. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear of it again? Will ye also be his disciple? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. That's right. That's what it comes all down to, doesn't it? Isn't that what it comes down to, all this legalist nonsense? Whose disciple do you want to be? You want to be Moses' disciple and follow those Ten Commandments? Or you want to be your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and be his follower and be his disciple? That's what it comes down to. Amazing. And yes, I just played a couple of videos from a man who is a, I guess a, it's not even reformed Seventh-day Adventist, it's just a, uh, um, what do they call it, like somebody who's left the Seventh-day Adventist but still follows the Sabbath thing, and yet he has good understanding of history, so what do you do about that? Oh, they say if Eon, uh, whatever your name, Ian um, Queen, uh, viewing at the door, if you ever hear this, you can't say yourself, well, they are our Lord Savior again. Who are going to be a disciple of, of Moses or of Christ? Who do you want to be a disciple of? Do you want to be a disciple of Moses or of Christ? Hello, Larry. You missed a really interesting reading. I may I'll read it again. Anyways, I'll go back to this. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, Therefore he said he therefore said his parents, he is of age. Ask him. Isn't that interesting? He was of age. Guess is your infant baptism, I wouldn't call that of age, would you? Or even eight for that matter, to be honest with you. Then again called they the men the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How open he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already. Ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. And isn't that the case once again? The legalists, the people that want to push the Ten Commandments on us, Aren't they really Moses' disciples? They don't really want to be Christ's disciples. They say they do. They say they believe in them. But they don't hear them. And, you know, it's easy for me to judge them. But I was that person, and that person one time. And now I hear them. 
but it took time. God's good patience. And um, seeing my own hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of others, pretending that they're even keeping the Ten Commandments. One of the greatest ways to figure out a man's a liar, ask him if he keeps the Ten Commandments. And if he says yes, yep, might as well move on. All right. I'm sorry. I'm going to be the disciple of Christ. If you want to, you can be the disciple of Moses. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why herein is a marvelous thing? that ye know not from whence he is, yet he hath opened my eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could not do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou waste altogether born in sin. Dost thou teach us? They cast him out. Didn't that sound familiar? Thou wast altogether born in sin. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world that they which see not might see that they which see might be made blind isn't that interesting wow and some of the silverers once again Jesus said for judgment I am come into this world that they which see not might see and they which see might be made blind and so the Pharisees, who would that be? Isn't that interesting? You think about that a little more. Well, who saw him? Oh, yeah, the Pharisees and the Jews, didn't they? Who didn't see him? The rest of us. Some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye see, if ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye see it, you say, we see. Therefore your sin remaineth. <laughs> verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not 
by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep heard his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. When, and when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice, and a stranger will may not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Well, there you go. I'm the door of the sheep, to the, of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear him, hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, that they might have it in more, abundant, more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catches them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is and hireling, he cares not for the sheep. <clears throat> I am the good shepherd. Well, Jesus is the good shepherd. And I know my sheep, and I am known of mine. As a father knoweth me, even so... No, I, the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my Father. There was a division, therefore, among 
again, among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? And others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of a blind? And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple of Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. <clears throat> well, I think that's pretty much. If you want to have any doubts about whether or not you're one of God's elect or one of his chosen, there's your answer. And if you have any doubts, you might want to ask yourself this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, he gives it to us, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. If I give, I give unto them eternal life, they shall never perish. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God, the King of the flesh, you really believe this, you know what it is. That's the answer. Don't make it any more difficult than it needs to be. Why do we have to make it more difficult than it needs to be? Something else to believe in but him. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. There's always something about the Jews. I recalled them, Larry. I talked to him earlier. Uh, does he want me to call him again or something about a show? Or I don't know. Uh, I want to. I don't know if I uh, really want to do that. I already talked to him before the show. Um, I'd rather just word, read the Word of God myself, to be honest with you. I get, I'm getting something out of this. Not that I don't get anything out of fellowship and all that, but I'd just rather be read, reading the Word of God, um, if you know what I mean. 
But there's one thing about these Jews. They sure like the stone people, don't they? People out there in the Middle East, man. One thing, if you go over to the Middle East, you might as well bring some protective gear just in case, because the odds are someone's going to throw a stone at you. Seems to be going on for thousands of years now. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father, for which those works do ye stone me. <laughs> the Jews answered him, saying, For good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou being a man makest thyself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world. Thou blasphemous, because I said I am the Son of God. Isn't that an interesting question? That's a very interesting question. And when you think about that, it's a very interesting question because you hear throughout the Old and New Testament the phrase, the Son of God, the sons of God, the sons of God. It's okay for them to call themselves the sons of God, but it wasn't okay for him to say he was the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, thou ye believe, though ye believe not me, because of the works that ye may know and believe, that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hands. There's something about Jesus. There's some weird things that happen. You know, Larry, if you want to join me, Larry, you certainly can for a little bit. Uh, you're more than welcome. Um, well, you think about uh, when Jesus, um, you know, is walking on the water to the ship, and then they realize it's Jesus. Next thing they know, they're on the edge of the uh, the lake. And how did he manage to just zip through all these crowds? It wasn't certainly because he uh, was an X-Man, because only X-Men can do that in our own vain imaginations and through blue screens and green screens. Hollywood effects. Yet he did it. Something to think about, huh? Look, Jesus Christ is God. He's part of the triumph. God, he is God. He's beginning... God, as we read in the beginning of this, John. Now, I didn't know this, and you see, the thing is, growing up, no one had told me this. I actually even was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and nobody told me this. Nobody ever told me this, taught me this, that in, in fact, no one was encouraged. You think it's bad being a Roman Catholic. As you being a Mormon. Being told that 
a lie who Christ was. The whole world lying about Jesus. The whole world is. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shone up in the darkness, and darkness comprehended not. That tells me that if you're a Mormon, you're in darkness, but you're... You are walking in darkness. That's okay. That's good. I just feel like reading tonight. This is just one of those nights I just feel like reading. Uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's good to read. Sometimes it's good to talk. Sometimes it takes breaks one way or the other. It's always good to read the Bible law, of course, on a daily basis. Um, well, think about the Mormons, you know, being a grumpy Mormon. I was never taught this. I was systematically indoctrinated to even avoid this. One of these days, I'd like to get my hands on the Mormon discussions again, and that would be a great conversation piece, Larry. That would be a great one. That would be a great one. Why do we live in a wicked world? We live in an awful world. I don't care what anybody says. We live in an awful world. When I say awful, I'm talking about man. There's a lot of really, just really, 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 really rotten people. Anyways, yeah, talking to my sister this week and all the things that she's going through, being a public school teacher and being harassed for even caring. And, uh, you know, I think I'll play some of Charlotte Hezerby's, uh discussion about how they miseducated in America. I think it's very important to talk about this. I'd maybe even to get my sister to watch it or hear it or something. Anyways, any way to get, reach out to her, so I keep getting something there. Uh, what's you, Larry? Oh, thanks. Thank you for the phone number, Larry. I do have it. Okay, good. It is a, it's a, an exhausting gauntlet, you know? Ah, exhausting gauntlet. All the deception and lies out there. The only truth, and it's not just me being religious, and it's not just me being, I'm trying to win over friends and influence people. The only truth is Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's not just me saying that. <clears throat> And you know what? When we go down to listen to uh, Charlotte Isabel, you're going to find out that it's even more truer. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees, even though... Uh, 
Everybody's a freaking liar. The only pre, the only sorry for that language. They're saying freaking. It comes from being a Mormon, going on a Mormon mission. But the truth is, everyone is a liar except for Christ. And if you don't have Christ in you, you're a liar. And you might think that I'm judging you. And you know what? Maybe I am. Maybe it's a righteous judgment. Without Christ, you are a liar. You can smile to me like a Cheshire cat, and you can give, whisper all sorts of empty promises, and that's all it ever will be. Without Christ, you are a liar. I am a liar. We're all liars without Christ. <laughs> revealed that in 1910, the Carnegie trustees asked themselves this question, quote, is there any way known to man more effective than war to so alter the life of an entire people? For a year, the trustees sought an effective, peaceful method to alter the life of an entire people. But ultimately, they concluded that war was the most effective way to change people. World War One, horrible. I mean, made every other war look like nothing. They sent a confidential message to President Wilson, insisting that the war not be ended too quickly. After the war, the Carnegie Endowment Trustees reasoned that if they could get control, there we go, of education in the United States, they would be able to prevent a return to the way of life as it had been prior to the war. And they recruited the Rockefeller Foundation to assist in such a monumental task. Education should aim at destroying free will so that pupils are thus schooled they will be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Influences of the home are obstructive. And in order to condition students, verses set to music and repeatedly intoned are very effective. It is for a future scientist to make these maxims concise and discover exactly how much it costs per head to make children believe that snow is black. When the technique has been perfected, every government that has been in charge of education for more than one generation will be able to control its subjects securely without the need of armies or policemen." End quote. Young people cannot be trusted to form their own opinions. It's our job to tell them. I had never intended to become involved in the, the 
battle that all of us were involved in. Uh, I had no idea anything was wrong uh, with the way the country was going when I, uh, as I was growing up, uh, and uh, even uh, during my foreign service experience, uh, I found myself mysteriously, I would say the good Lord works in wondrous ways, being put in spots around the world or in my country where extraordinary things were taking place under the guise of change. And we've all heard that so much, you know, from the Obama administration, Bill Clinton, he was the first one to mention change agents, etc. So for some reason, I I was plucked out and uh, I found myself being sort of pushed. My name is Charlotte uh, Thompson, my maiden name is Thompson. Uh, my husband, who I want to give great credit to at this point, uh, was Belgian from the Flemish part of Belgium. I met him, I'll uh, explain that later, in Europe when I was working at the embassy in Brussels. Without my husband's uh, help throughout the last 30 years, certainly when we came back to Maine, uh, my work never would have happened. And uh, he understood beautifully. He's been highly educated in Europe, and he understood the whole plan. In fact, about five years after we had come back to the United States, uh, someone gave me Gary Allen's book, None Dare Call a Conspiracy. I was on the school board, and uh, this lady called me, and she loved the work I was doing on the school board, of course nobody else did, but she said, I've got a book for you. She brought it down, and I read it, and I looked at it, and I thought, I've never heard of such things as this. I mean, this is a conspiracy? to really take over the world. Thank you, Gary Allen, who's no longer with us. And so I said to my husband, good Belgian, well-educated, do you know about this? And so he took a look at me and said, yeah, sure, I know about it. I said, you know about this? You know about the Illuminati and the Bavarian conspiracy? You know about all, all this, the plan to implement a world order and the, and, uh, huh? And he said, well, yeah, I learned all that in school. And I thought, oh, okay. So thank you, Jan, wherever you are. I think that maybe you're very involved in helping all of us right now straighten out this mess. We go back. I was born in 1930. Yes, I'm getting there. Mm -hmm. My mother was from uh, Virginia, a wonderful Southern conservative, wonderful gal. And my father uh, came from Pennsylvania. He came from a family that, uh, in, in mining, and his father was a very recognized uh, mining engineer uh, who ultimately went out to South Africa and uh, opened the gold mines. And my, and my grandfather knew all these people. My grandfather was Skull and Bones. My father uh, was uh, a wonderful person. He was mayor of several towns on Long Island, New York, and in New Jersey. And he was a real constitutionalist. And somehow he was still, he was a member of Skull and Bones, but he didn't have anything to, to do with the the power structure there, right? He, he absolutely nothing, although he did go to their meetings and he went out to the island for retreats and all that, that stuff. He went to Bohemian Grove once. And uh, so I grew up in sort of an atmosphere of, uh, it was apolitical in a way, except for local, local politics, which my father was fabulous on. Anytime anybody did anything like wanted to break down local government or get rid of elected officials like regionalism does, my father would be right there with the Constitution. So well, anyway, I went to private schools, and uh, I got out of uh, uh, prep school in, in uh, Wellesley, and I decided I really didn't want to go to college. A lot of people thought it was a mistake. I wanted to go to business school instead. 
I was tired of what I was somehow I had a bad feeling about things that were being pushed in the prep school like I, I was a member of World Federalist. I was falling to this junk. So but somehow I didn't want to continue that. So instead of going on to Smith or Vassar or what, I went to Catherine Gibbs uh, business school in New York City. Wonderful, wonderful, difficult, difficult school. But I learned best, best grammar, how to write, accounting, shorthand, which came in very, very handy, I can assure you, especially when I was in the Department of Education. I got out, I graduated, and uh, the Korean War was on. So I, I was very patriotic. My mother had always worked for the Red Cross. She was a volunteer during World War II at the mental hospitals bringing the guys in from the war. So I, I heard a lot about the Red Cross, which is, I want to point out right now, changed enormously from that time. And uh, I wish I could say in a better way. I think it does very good work. But it's connected with all the other, you know, uh, non-governmental, non-profit groups, and they have all been infiltrated. I signed up for Korea. That's right. But they changed my orders. And at the last minute, I went to Guam. I spent a a year there. My next assignment was Shitoshi Hokkaido, another air base, fighter base. I finished my tour. I didn't want to come home uh, by air. I wanted to uh, go by ship. So I decided to go. A friend of mine went with me, third class, in the bowels of uh, the Vietnam, which was a uh, freighter. Luckily, I was in third class. So I was down, and we had very good food. The French have good food, whether it's third class or not. Always a big bottle of wine in the middle of the table. And I, the people at the table were uh, coming out of North Vietnam, coming out of North Korea, and China. They were refugees. And... Of course, the Vietnamese ones spoke French, and the Chinese were very well-educated. They were well-educated Chinese, so they spoke English. I spoke French, so the conversations were unbelievable. They would tell me what had happened, why they were coming out, what was going on under the communists, which uh, we didn't let General MacArthur, you know, move in and take over. We, we, we come and brought him home. We could have won that war. We could have kept the whole Far East from collapsing, but that, that wasn't the plan. That old soldier never die. They just fade away. This one woman was taking her daughter to Paris, to the conservatory there of music, uh, to study piano. And she told me that her father or grandfather, I'm not sure, was a very famous pianist in China during the Cultural Revolution, and that they cut his hands off. And so that, I never forgot that. And then the other lady, uh, she was from Vietnam, North Vietnam, and she told me that her grandfather, they, they uh, killed him because he was opposed to the communist regime, and they cut his head off, and they stuck it on a pole, and they marched around town with his head on a pole, which, of course, was to you know, warn the rest of the Vietnamese, keep your mouth shut. Don't go up against this regime. Then uh, my father, uh, (laughs) he's a New York lawyer, he's an absolutely wonderful person, great sense of humor, and I know he's going bone, so we have to forgive him for that. But anyway, so he says to me after, I've been going for two years, mind you, this is this young daughter that he cried when I left, right? What are you doing going well? So I two months home, he said to me, Sharp, well, um, when are you thinking about moving on? And I thought, God, I've only been home two months. You know, I've been gone for over two years, and they want me out of here. And I thought, well, you know, I guess he's right. 
you know, I better not hang around home forever. And so I went down to the State Department. I had all the background because of Catherine Gift. That's the best thing that ever happened. I had the credentials to get into the State Department to work for ambassadors, which I did, assistant secretaries. I worked in Washington and Soviet affairs, in Middle Eastern affairs, when all the Suez Canal stuff and everything was going on. I took dictation from John Foster Dulles. I'll never forget once when he was, uh, this was really during the tremendous problems in the, with the Suez Canal and everything, and he had uh, Golda Meir and the ambassador from Israel, you know, to the United States there. This is so funny because uh, I was taking shorthand, and so all of a sudden someone kicks me under the table, Golda Meir, uh, kicking, she's kicking her, her friend, the ambassador of the United States, whose name I can't recall right now, and, and uh, kicked me instead. And uh, I said, oh, gee, and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. She said, uh, uh, he's, he's dictating too, too fast. She's a, he's a very good friend of He's dictating too fast. There's no way you can get it. So anyway, those are little funny stories about the State Department. But anyway, and then I was in Soviet affairs. I saw very strange things there. I went to South Africa. I worked under, for the ambassador in South Africa. Fascinating because my father and my grandfather actually had lived in South Africa. Then I got sick and I came back to the States. And then they assigned me to work for uh, Ambassador Douglas MacArthur, Jr. That's the nephew of the general and in Brussels. He was a wonderful man. He was not easy to work for. He was a wonderful person, a good American. And that was at the time, again, where these things kept happening in my life. This was uh, the Belgian Congo crisis and in Katanga. And I was there. I saw all the cables coming in regarding the U.N. troops and how they were raping uh, citizens and nuns and people were dying and all. So I was there in Brussels. Here I'm learning, Charlotte's learning, that the U.N. isn't what people think it is. And uh, I, all these cables coming in. I meet my husband. I meet him on a train going skiing. That's how I met my husband. My husband and I are engaged. We're, we we subsequently get married in the United States. He comes over. Then we go back to Belgium, and we're there for about four years. And then from there we go again to a hot spot, which I didn't realize. I'm talking about the weird things that happened. Uh, the hot spot was Grenada. I could see then from our house overlooking the bay, uh, the lagoon in St. George's, all this activity. Uh, boats coming in with strange flags. Stokely Carmichael came down there to sort of stir up the pot to get the Grenadians, uh, you know, mad at the, cap- the rich, nasty capitalists who owned these yachts and all. It was really getting bad there. And I knew the political situation well because we had Grenadians working on the boat. I had a lot of Grenadian friends in government as well. Anyway, we left. Uh, we, were at, we were there about five years. And then when we left, I remember telling our Grenadian friends, you're going to have trouble here. There's trouble coming. And, of course, it did in 1984, I guess. That was one good thing Ronald Reagan did, which I was opposed to because it was a U.N. move, but he saved a lot of my friends from being killed by the the Soviet regime in Grenada by moving in there uh, to protect, so-called protect American students. Uh, But it was really the oil pipelines, I think, of Rockefeller that we were protecting. We're in Grenada. uh, We go back to the United States. I put the children in public school. So here we go. I had no idea that... uh, education would be uh, any different from sort of what I'd had. I had had a good education, a private school education, but I didn't know. 
And so they go into the, the public school system in Camden, Maine. And in retrospect, I believe that that was a pilot school, one of them for the whole country, for changing our education system from an academic classical educational system to uh, brainwashing for uh, the international socialist government. Uh, we, everybody has all the research on this. I have so much. It's all in my book, The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. I hit Camden, and I start asking, you know, I get on a little committee, uh, philosophy committee, and we're all asked by the superintendent, a highly skilled change agent out of Harvard, uh, well, I want to know what all of you feel the purpose of education should be. You know, and so I, I said, well, I think it should be uh, to give the students a, a, a sound of academic education in, in uh, basics and, uh, and also a strong sense of sound morals and values. And boom, they all looked at me and they said, whose values? And I thought, hey, what's going on here? I said, what's happened in my country? I mean, don't we still have the same values? I mean, uh, what, don't we all sort of agree? You don't steal, you don't rob, you don't, you don't kill babies, uh, you don't kill people in war. You, don't, you know, you know oh, a lot of things that I thought we, we believe in. You don't lie. Everything was changing, and I saw it, and I saw the curriculum coming in, and I went to the, the value clarification training myself to find out. I had a call from a master teacher who taught all over the world, and she said, you are absolutely correct. I, I was on the school board by that time. After three tries, I got on. And she said, you're absolutely correct. I want to pay for you to go for some in-service training. And I said, in what? And she said, well, it's, it's, it's called Innovations in Education, and it's how to become a change agent. She paid $100 for me to go. I went. And all these normal-looking people, nice, some from my own school district and all, and, and the guy is uh, a facilitator, but he's using this big book called Innovations in Education, a Change Agent's Guide, and it has all these case studies of teachers and administrators and how to sneak in controversial curriculum such as death ed, sex ed, bullying ed, uh, alcohol ed, drug ed, you know, all these programs that have education hanging off the end of them that have nothing to do with education. It's interesting. You don't have math ed and science ed and all. They call it math and science and history, right? But when you see anything with education hanging off the end of it, red flag, huh? In that training, uh, he taught us how to identify resistors in our community. And they were the people who were smart, who knew that these programs were designed for nothing other than to make children engage in sex, to drink, to take drugs, to do all the things that the programs, the parents were being told the programs were to help the children. I was considered a resistor too. Here, here they were training, training me to identify myself. Huh? And so I never, ever got over that. Also, we were being trained to go to the important people in the community, and they're really very good people. We all know who they, they are. They're friends of ours and all, but they're head of Rotary, head of Garden Club, head of Historical Society. You go to them. And you explain to them in very, very good, you know, uh, highly skilled change agent uh, manner, which is just lies, how important these programs are for your children. We've got to put these programs in. This was 1970, 
three all the way through right now. Huh? That period in education, we taught the unfreezing of our children's values, the ones taught by the parents at home and the, and the church, basically. Change agents were highly trained by the National Training Laboratories. We had the headquarters for that in Bethel, Maine. That goes all the way back to World War II. I have the original paper from that, and it says that what they're putting in is the they want to change the values to unfreeze the system, and then they're going to implement the new values, the new communist values for world government. Huh? That was the goal, uh, and they did a good job on it between 1970 and the year 2000. And now the values, as we can all see, people are saying, oh, well, we've got to be tolerant. You know, there are no, no absolutes anymore. That's not fair to, to judge people. Don't be judgmental. If your, your grandmother is dying of cancer and can't afford, uh, you can't afford the medicine, uh, it's okay to steal it. You know, that's what you call uh, values clarification uh, with the uh, education for a planned economy using uh, workforce training, uh, identifying children at a very early age, what they're going to do the rest of their lives. It's the Soviet uh, planned economic system, starting as early as first grade. Uh, That's being put in now uh, under the guise of school choice, charter schools, and using the uh, performance-based, outcome-based Skinnerian Pavlovian method with a computer. Pavlov, interestingly enough, was uh, a Russian. People think that he invented uh, operant conditioning. He didn't. He went to Leipzig, Germany, and uh, he studied under Wilhelm Wundt in the 1800s, mid-1800s. Wilhelm Wundt was a philosopher, German philosopher, who uh, was involved in trying to figure out how you can get people to do change, you know, understanding the uh, psychology, what makes people click. Uh, how you can get them to do what you want them to do, et cetera. And he became very frustrated with uh, the inability to change people's behavior and their views and everything, uh, doing the traditional way, you know, lectures and this and that and all, and discussions and all. And finally, he realized that what he was dealing with was the human soul. The soul is a very difficult thing to track. It sort of floats all over the place and it rebels and it doesn't, you know, it, it's independent. And so... He came up with a scheme to uh, attack the, the nervous system. That's really what it is. It's neurological. If you can get them to react in certain ways to what you want, like, like when the doctor, give you a good idea, the doctor used to, physical exam, they, they take a hammer, the rubber thing, and knock your knee, and it goes, Oops. So he figured, well, you know what? We, we can operate on that thesis where we, we attack the uh, the nervous system, and it's a stimulus response thing. So you have to provide the stimulus in order to get the response. Well, if it was dog training, the stimulus would be the dog biscuit or something. And ultimately, you know, when the dog sees you picking the biscuit out of the, the box, uh, he's going to do what you want, right? And uh, so it's pretty, really pretty simple. I had, I had never gotten involved in having to figure it out until, uh, until uh, a very good friend of mine, a teacher in Arizona, had to go through the first program that was brought out in 1965. One of the first ones was called Mastery Learning. And she quit education when she went through the training. She said it was so sick. And she had, she had papers from doctors and all saying it, made the ch- it even makes children sick. And she, I met her when I went into the U.S. Department of Ed because I found her correspondence came to my office. 
and it was referred to me, and that was how I met her. And she was the one who educated me about upward conditioning and, and how, how awful it is. I mean, it can absolutely destroy free will. We had free will until we got to the computer. The computer absolutely uh, destroyed. The child cannot, if there's no thinking going on there. There's no transfer being made. And you've got to understand that. All the documents in regard to this by, by people, not myself, by educators who have been trained in it are in my book. So you don't have to say Charles said that. You, know, you can say Professor So-and-so said that. Uh, I, I have one incredible paper in the back of my book by a, a leading educator written in the 60s that I managed to get. It was attached to the project best application for funding that I talked about, the one I got fired for. And that paper talks about the need for computers and how wonderful they're going to be and all. But he says, if you don't agree with the message, morally and ethically that's going on to that software, do not do it. And that's coming right out of the mouth of an educator involved in it. He says you have to have a conscience because that software is so powerful that no matter, you may think, oh, well, the person on the other end, you know, he can do what he wants and make up a no. Once it's in the software, and once the child is clicking away on the computer and getting a little happy face as the reward, that's what happens. We all know that feeling when we get something good on the computer. He's not going to ask any questions. That's it. Finish. And it can bring the students to a certain totally opposite position in their thinking using Socratic questioning. So it's very dangerous. I can't tell you how dangerous it is. I mean, how dangerous is a method that can actually change, actually destroy one's conscience? That's bad news. And we were all softened up, and that's what we're looking at today. Now, the rephrasing has to take place. The rephrasing is going to take place with the use of a computer. Schools will be bookless. Uh, they are already some uh, some of these programs coming in. So anyway, I I was on the board. I saw that. I went for the retraining. Then I I get, got off the board and and I formed with Bettina Dobbs of Maine, a wonderful teacher and a nurse. I formed we formed something called Guardians of Education for Maine, and uh, we were in business for about 15 years. And we did a lot of very good work. In uh, 1980. I went to work for Ronald Reagan, uh, and I worked there for two years until I was fired. But uh, I had worked hard for him from 1978 to get him elected, right? And then in 1980, because of the work I'd done uh, and the work in education, they put me, I got an appointment in the U.S. Department of Education. Because the people in Washington, with the, the, the conservatives, they were good back then. They're not anymore. Uh, they were... Uh, very, they were very impressed by the work I'd done in Maine uh, on education. So they pulled me down and put me in the U.S. Department of Ed in what was the most important slot probably in the world in education. I know people out there are shaking their heads and say, why would they put her there? She doesn't have a college education. Right? Why are they putting her in there? Well, they knew, uh, first of all, Reagan had promised to get rid of the Department of Education, something he didn't do, and I will hold that against him forever because he could have. Since that was the plan when, when they were staffing the department, they didn't have to put important people 
in those old slots, like my slot that I got put into, would have been filled by the former president of Harvard or Stanford or something, right? Or University of Chicago. That job had been held in the past by very important people in education. But since they were getting rid of the department, it didn't make any difference. So they just plopped me in. Now talk about the hand of God, huh? And all my files were full of everything they planned on doing. And so I don't even think my boss knew this. You know, he was a so-called conservative. But he became very suspicious about me because I was always busy. Uh, even though I didn't have a lot of work to do from him, I was always busy because I had lots of things to read. And I would stay after work. I'd stay until 2 a.m. in the morning. When everybody was gone, I'd get into everything. Sure, if, if, if it had just been the job and all the files and everything had been, had been switched away by these former very important educational change agent communists, Marxists, uh, I would not have found stuff, but all the stuff was left in the office. What I saw was so depressing. That's hardly the word. I mean, this was, this was the education of Charlotte. It was the greatest horror story I had ever encountered. And at one point, he sent me, he wanted to get rid of me out of that office, he sent me up to the National Institute of Education, which is where all the research is performed. They send out all the grants and contracts to the universities or schools or whatever from there. I found out I was really in the belly of the beast right there because I, I had access to all the computer printouts of all the grants and contracts of your money folks going out, not just in, across our country, but all around the world about how to change the education system from academics to a brainwashing using Pavlovian, Skinnerian, opera conditioning, computers, and workforce training for the globalist economy the corporate fascist socialist communist government that's coming right in this minute. I had a friend from Maryland who used to come and check a huge Cadillac. And uh, I'd get all my stuff and put it in, interesting for many people, LL bean bags. You know those big LL bean bags? That's huge ones. And I'd put all the papers in there. And at lunchtime, we'd, we'd meet uptown for lunch. She'd come in, marvelous, the gal, Australian, who I absolutely love, probably one of the finest Americans who ever uh, she's Australian, but she did more for our country than anybody I've ever known. Brilliant. We'd meet, dump the stuff in her car, go have lunch. She'd take it home. She'd get some of it out to the people across the country. It's really marvelous. Well, once uh, I had these two big bags and two of these major change agents at National Institute of Education, uh, they were coming down. I was going to the elevator, and they were walking down. I thought, oh, oh no, you know, I've got to get out of here. So I had to go in the men's room and hide, and uh, I never forget that, hiding in the men's room. I thought, what if, I mean, there may be other guys coming in here, not just through the elevator. And, and anyway, nobody came in. They went down the elevator. I came out and dumped the stuff in her car. It was not a really um, exciting job. It was mainly to see if the universities, the schools, the different entities across the country that were getting money or around the world from the taxpayers that they were getting their final, their quarterly reports in on time. That's all. It had nothing to do with philosophy. Huh? And so one day I ran across a grant to Lansing School District, Lansing, Michigan. This is University of Michigan connection with my office. And it was a value clarification program for first graders, elementary school. And it 
pre- and post-test with those little children about what goes on at home, what religion do oh, And I looked at this thing and I thought, what are they doing? And so I turned to this bureaucrat who was working uh, with the GAO about financial things, and I said, look, we're doing waste, fraud, and abuse. I know that. But I said, what do you take a look at this? Don't you think that this is pretty wasteful, fraudulent, and abusive in another way? And so he took a look at me and said, oh, my Lord. He said, this is horrible. And really nice guy, bureaucrat, Washington. People sometimes get after all the bureaucrats. They're not all that bad. Some of them are just like us, and they care. And uh, I said, well, look, uh, you know, I'm only meant to be here two weeks, but could you give me extra time? Because I want to go through all these grants and contracts. And he said, you can have as much time as you want. So I spent six weeks up there going through all the stuff. And uh, I can't tell you how horrible. First of all, even if you don't care about children, you don't care about education, you don't care about your country, you don't care about anything, people. Are there people out there that don't care about anything? They do care about their wallet, huh? You should care about this money that has been spent in the name of education. It's total brainwashing. Anything coming out of Washington is a total Marxist brainwash. And Marxism is the world of the future unless we stop it right now. I'm fired for leaking one of these documents to human events. It was the one that put technology into with the computer on it, with the curriculum on it. Uh, it was a grant going out to every single state with uh, the computer curriculum uh, for the state. Can you imagine designed by Washington and all the different government education associations? And within that big paper that I found, Better Education Skills Through Technology was called Project Best. I found this one paper, one thing, this was sort of a draft, and it said, what we at the federal level can control and manipulate. That's a direct quote, quote. And then it listed, this is for us at the local level, because we don't know how to run our own laws, as a state, I get fired. Uh, then uh, I write the president, I write Reagan, and I tell him what's going on in the department. And uh, I said, you would be shocked if you knew this place has got to be shut down, et cetera. And it was a long letter. I explained everything that the U.S. Department of Education is a Marxist factory designed to destroy any semblance of added, good, good values, academics, et cetera, and to make sure our children march blindly into a socialist communist world government. That's the goal of the U.S. Department of Education. They didn't want, they... Anyone to know that Ronald Reagan had that letter? So I never got a reply. I tried to. I called Ed Meese. I, called, I went, went home, called uh, Ed Meese, who was the chief counselor or whatever in the White House, and I said, I want to talk to you all. I want an answer to that letter. Uh, finally, I went down and talked with Ed Meese's aide, Ken Cripp, and I said, I he patted me on the shoulder, you know, that all that way they do that. Oh, Charlotte, uh, aren't you pleased to know the president got your letter? That's the admission right there. Now, I know he got it because uh, John Lofton, a journalist at that time in Washington, called his office, the White House, back in 1983 or something, 
uh, and asked. And they said, yes, it's on his desk, and he's marked it up. So let's get that straight. He had it. The purpose of that letter was to make sure that that department is abolished and the American as public education is returned to its original status, run at the local level and with elected school board members and with no influence whatsoever from the federal or international level. That's how it should be. It was the best education system in the world. That's what I was asking for. Anyway, it didn't happen. That letter to Reagan, again, is on my website, delivered coming down under a PDF. I wrote in 1985 a book called Back to Basics Reform or Skinnerian International Curriculum. And to make sure people read this little 39-pager, I decided to put an asterisk so that they didn't really have to read it. I put an asterisk which said, Necessary for United States Participation in a One World Socialist Government Plan for the Early Years of the 21st Century. When the conservatives, the neocons, let's call them that, not Goldwater people, when the neoconservatives, Heritage Foundation, all of those groups, I'm sorry, folks, when they decided, when they saw that book, they boycotted it. They boycotted that book, which told Americans exactly what I just told all of you, what I've seen, and that we had to get rid of the department. It all happened under Ronald Reagan. You call it what you want. Corporate fascism, fascism, socialism, communism, Planned economy, you call it what you want. What is it? It's, it's really, uh, it's horrible. Your children have no upward mobility whatsoever. I told you earlier, I said, yeah, they're put into a slot early on. The, the government and the, and the schools, they decide what your child is capable of doing the rest of his life. He, he, he might be able to sneak out of that sometime if he's brilliant and uh, do his own thing, but it's unlikely. So it's fixed. Uh, this is the end of upward mobility for our children, end of freedom for this country, planned economy is the end of freedom. It's a failed system, but there are people at the top who, who live very well by it. And then I find out that Ronald Reagan has signed an agreement with Gorbachev to merge the two education systems. Well, you can't tell me that conservatives didn't know that was going on because I know some who were at Geneva when this happened. And they didn't do anything about it, but we found out. And so we fought this United States-Soviet Education Exchange Agreement. The Carnegie Corporation also signed agreements. Uh, basically, most of that was to do with computers and technology and critical thinking for little elementary school children. Those agreements were signed. We paid five. We raised five thousand dollars to put an ad in the Washington Post, Washington to expose that. It was called uh, "Educate is Worse Than Watergate" or something. And uh, but, again, we got no support because that information wasn't meant to get out. Then, uh, about four years after the fact, I, I, uh, my little article was called Soviets in the Classroom, America's Latest Education Pad, that nobody would touch. The conservatives, all the different conservative groups, media and all, would not publish it. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, I got a phone call from a wonderful man by the name of Robert Morris. He was a judge from New Jersey. He called and, and he said, uh, I'm now the president of America's Future. And I had tried to get this article published by America's Future, so he's in the classroom. And uh, I couldn't get it published. It was interesting because America's Future used to do a lot of articles on bad textbooks and everything in the United States. And I thought, surely they would be interested 
in the United States Soviet textbook uh, agreement too, and exchanges. I'm sure they, but no, they would not publish it. So this Morris, Bob Morris became president. He found my article in a drawer in the desk that was left there, the manuscript. And he read it, and he thought, oh, what is this? Can you imagine? He's a leading conservative himself, very important person. He had not heard about it. He had not heard what Reagan had done. It's happened ever since 1958 when the first agreement was signed by Eisenhower with the Soviet Union at the peak of the Cold War. And then the various agreements have been signed all the way through until recently, one with terrible one with China. So we have merged. And let me point out that today I was informed that uh, there are forces at work in the state of Maine that are surrounding our wonderful people that we elected last November. Traditional mayors, good, hardworking mayors who were very upset about what's going on. They worked hard to get our governor in, a wonderful man, Paul LePage. And I want to warn all of you that out in your states, if you elected some really good people, they've been surrounded. And you've got to be very careful. You've got to let them know not to go along with any of the agendas that call for regional government or consolidation. Because regionalism, you know, the merging of services, the police forces in one town, police force merges with another one, the schools consolidate, all the little schools merge into a big one. They tell you that's to save money and all. They're lying to you because it doesn't. We know that. It doesn't save money. But what it really is, regionalism is communism. And I have an article. It's in Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. You can look up the name Zeitlin. You will see this communist writer for the Communist Daily World in the mid-70s talking about the need for the United States to implement regionalism and consolidation. It's communism. So any effort that you see out there where they use the word, they don't use the word regionalism that much anymore. They're getting smart. They use the word consolidation. They convince the people, especially in economic downturn times like right now, this tragic time we're going through, that this will save money. They won't have as high taxes. Consolidate, consolidate. Don't do it. We are the major country that's going down to communism, and the rest of the world will follow. They'll call it the global system, the international socialist global system. It is nothing but a totalitarian system. In 2002, President Gorbachev, in speaking in London, he called the European Union the new European Soviet. We know what we're looking at. The North American Union and all other regional entities throughout the world, whether it's the Pacific Circle Consortium or whether it's the Middle East. You think we went into the Middle East for any reason other than to destroy Iraq and uh, to make it part of a region uh, hooked into the banks? What they're doing is they're destroying the Middle East so they can restructure it as a region in this new world order. So these are all the regions. Their whole structure is based on the model, which is the European Union. So I ask Americans, what will you call, what would Gorbachev call the North American Union? He would call it the North American Soviet. How do we like that? Wake up. If there's anything 
that is important for you to remember from these videos today is that we are at the end of the line. We are doing exactly what Gorbachev wants. Consolidation. Now, this is an interesting cartoon. This is regional government. This is the consolidation of schools, basically. And you see the little guy in the one-room schoolhouse. He's chewing a piece of grass or something. And he looks very happy. He belongs to Little Froglet Creek High School. He's chewing the grass with a smile. If you follow him through, you're going to see him looking more and more miserable as they merge his one-room schoolhouse to a six-room schoolhouse to eight more schools and then into a central school, which is a region. Uh, and then you're going to see him at the end. He's holding his left arm out, up like this, clenched fist, little hair, very unhappy. And his T-shirt says, Our Lady of the Benevolent Dictatorship, One World Global Training Corps. And then the last one he has on earphones, you know, like you guys have all the time. Finally, he's smiling. He's connected to something, a wire. And it says, Interplanetary Carbon Unit Reprogramming Pod. Well, I saw that in a very liberal left education journal called Phi Delta Kappa. Many people will recognize that, 1983. The title of it is Consolidation, going from the small school to the central regionalized school, and uh, which is what regional government is all about. And, you know, you can get rid of all the parochial views that the children have in a little school where the parents can go you know, the school board meeting is just across the street from school, and all the parents know each other, the teacher, you know, it's a lovely atmosphere. And then you end up with all the children going long distances on the bus, which is no good for them, to the regional school. And then you have country boys and girls who are being mixed with city boys and girls. So then they get into the drug scene. So we've seen with consolidation that the test scores go down, the drug problem gets worse, the cost of education increases, although they tell you that consolidation is to make it cheaper. A lot of people just don't understand the word consolidation. Consolidation is consolidating all the services together under the guise of it's going to be cheaper for you. But in the process, what happens is you lose all your elected officials because all of these entities are being merged. So at the local level, you don't have any representation anymore. And Ultimately, you spend far more. That's the whole restructuring of our constitutional form of government. It's been thrown to the wolves in favor of this regionalism and consolidation system in every area. Education, uh, you know, government bureaucracy, does it make things cheaper? Uh, you name it. Uh, planning, the word is central planning. That's the Soviet system, central planning, regionalism. No matter how beautiful everything looks outside, no matter how good those restaurants are in your town or the good funny movies or the whatever, no matter whatever beautiful things you see in your life and your family, et cetera, et cetera, folks, it's curtain. October 24, 1975, the World Affairs Council of Philadelphia issued a Declaration of Interdependence written by well-known historian and liberal think tank Aspen Institute board member Henry Steele Commager. 
This alarming document, which calls to mind President Kennedy's July 4, 1962 speech calling for a declaration of interdependence, Kennedy, huh? was written as a contribution to our nation's celebration of its 200th birthday and signed by 125 members of the U.S. Senate and House. When in the course of history the threat of extinction confronts mankind, it is necessary for the people of the United States to declare their interdependence with the people of all nations and to embrace those principles and build those institutions which will enable mankind to survive and civilization to flourish. Two centuries ago, our forefathers brought forth a new nation. Now we must join with others to bring forth a new world order. We affirm that the economy of all nations is a seamless web and that no one man can any longer effectively maintain its processes of production and monetary systems without recognizing the necessity for collaborative regulation by international authorities. This little blue book is called Conclusions and Recommendations, and it has a weird title, and you'd think it only deals with social studies, but it doesn't. It's the Report of the Commission on the Social Studies. It was funded by the Carnegie Corporation, and the book virtually recommends that the curriculum all be geared towards the Soviet system, internationalism, planned economy, et cetera. It's been referred to by a leading British uh, professor of British socialism as a, a plan for a socialist America. This book is at my son's website, americandeception.com, thank heavens, because this is the only copy that exists in the whole world, right here. All right, so that's dated 1934. And, and what they're doing there is they're, they're really talking about putting in a planned economy. So that's what we're putting in right now with the, the program that's just gone into our little school in Dresden, Maine. We put in the DiLorenzo Reinventing Schools uh, plan, which I said earlier, uh, your, your, kids, your children will be graduating at 14 or 21. No grades, no ABCD, no kindergarten through 12th grade because it's going to all be workforce training and the curriculum will be based on the Malcolm Baldrige Total Quality Management Award. It's only in the past been given to Cadillac and Hilton Hotels and things like that. The Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award gets results. We're not there yet. We're continuously improving and it's something that is so deep in our organization that the concepts and principles of Baldrige will be applied forever here. So this same Carnegie Corporation, in 1933, instituted the eight-year study, which went on until 1941. That's the Skinner method, performance-based, results-based. That's all what you, what you can do, not what you know in your head. They don't want children to think or know anything, no history. It's what you can do for the good of the global economy. And uh, the Education Commission of the States, a very important unconstitutional regional entity, which controls education in every state as well, they had a little newsletter that I used to get. And one day I was reading it, and my eyes went down to the bottom of the page, and it said, it said, it said outcomes-based education is, and of course I was fighting outcomes-based education, and it said it was experimented with for eight years in the 1930s and 40s by the Carnegie Corporation. It was called the eight-year study. 
So nothing's new, folks. If we think the outcomes-based education, that we, which, which is the biggest dumbing down education system that ever happened with children graduating at 14, right? Uh, if we think that it's new, no. It came from the eight-year study, which again was Carnegie. Okay. Now, Carnegie, we might as well mention this at the same time. 1965, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, Carnegie was all involved in paying for the national assessment, which is all 60% politically correct. That's the test that all schools around the country have had to give for the past, ever since 1965. Now it is 60% politically correct. Your kids' ideas on uh, global warming, sustainable development, a world government, the fact that constitutions outmoded, all that. So they paid for the national assessment. They were the ones instrumental in putting up the money for the Education Commission of the states in Denver. In your Senate Education Committee in your state, there's always to be one person who is on the membership of the uh, Education Commission of the states. So there'll be about 50 state people. So they get their orders from the Education Commission of the states. That's Carnegie, paid for that. In 1985, Carnegie signed an agreement with the, with the Soviet Academy of Science at the same time, Reagan signed the agreements with Gorbachev to merge the two education systems. Carnegie uh, signed with the Academy of Science to develop computer courseware for elementary schools dealing with critical thinking. That was an agreement signed. That's for our children, right? In first grade, critical thinking on the computer. Reagan, Clinton, the two Bushes and all, implemented the schools and work agenda. That was the beginning of the planned economy under Reagan. So then uh, Mark Tucker comes in, Carnegie. All the controversy going on in the 90s, Americans were up in arms about the destruction of their school system. They would go in deliberately and destroy, because in order to restructure, you have to destroy. Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, David Hornbeck, who's big on compulsory uh, uh, community service, compulsory. He called for that when he was a superintendent of schools in, uh, in Maryland. He was commissioner. Way back, he called for mandatory service. That's another thing, folks. You better watch out. You're gonna be, we're going to be slaves. Mandatory service. So anyway, the same Hornbeck, who's connected to Carnegie all along, goes into Kentucky, destroys that system, goes up to Rochester, New York. He goes out to the state of Washington, you, Iowa, destroy the schools, restructure them for school to work. That's all Carnegie. And the latest information coming in uh, for Maine with a complete uh, recommendation, that is, who knows, maybe our governor, well, we can get to him fast enough, you know, to help him understand what, that we can't have charter schools. Charter schools are the vehicle to implement the planned economy. We can't have them. They're unelected school boards anyway. Well, we don't even have a school board with a charter school. They get federal money. Why no school board? They get federal money, so we have to give the federal test. No charter schools, forget it. So all of this is coming together, coalescing at the same time. The 3,000-page hearings of the Congressional Investigation of the Reef Committee are investigation of the subversive activities of the tax-exempt fund agents. I brought the only available copy in the country, 3,000 pages from a really good friend of mine, a wonderful American. He had been offered any, any amount of money for that 20 years ago by 
one of the minions of the tax exempt foundation. They did not want that copy to be floating around. The research director for those hearings, his name was Norman Dodd. I knew him. And uh, the conversation that I'm going to discuss right now that he had uh, with the president of the Ford Foundation, Rowan Gaither, was off the record in New York City at Ford Foundation headquarters. And Norman Dodd told me over dinner in Washington, D.C., in a restaurant in Georgetown, Brown Gaither said to him, Mr. Dodd, uh, you know, basically, we've, we at the foundations, we don't determine the agenda. The agenda has come from directions from the White House. That was Eisenhower at the time, right at the peak of the Cold War. And that agenda, our instructions are to use our tax-exempt status, your money, folks, change America so it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. Now, a lot of you may say, well, that never happened. Well, it's happening right now, folks. It's happening right now as we speak. Foundation-funded non-bloody revolution. Committee Chairman Carol Reese warned fellow congressmen of a diabolical conspiracy that a certain few foundations were financing the socialist and communist overthrow of the United States. Uh, after World War I, they tried to get the League of Nations in. And there was tremendous opposition to that. And then you had opposition between then and between World War II. You had Lindbergh and all these, a lot of Americans going before the Congress to keep us from going into the UN. You had all sorts of opposition. But they got their way. The Reese Committee learned that the Rockefeller Foundation and Carnegie Endowment for International Peace were, with tax-exempt dollars, funding leftist propaganda operations aimed at changing America through the brain, not the battlefield. Patriotism, national sovereignty, individual responsibility, and Christian beliefs were belittled, while the concepts of a one-world government, socialism, collectivism, and humanism were deemed essential for peace in the modern age. A clandestine and successful non-bloody revolution had been masterminded by some of America's most powerful and devious men, men who did not want to be exposed by a congressional investigating committee. The man chosen by Reese to be the committee's research director was Norman Dodd, Yale graduate, intellectual, and New York investment banker. During this writer's frequent visit to Dodd's retirement home in Keene, Virginia, he repeatedly spoke, Dodd, of the conviction that justice demanded that those foundations should be compelled to spend a like amount of dollars to undo the damage they have done to America, end quote. Dodd sent committee questionnaires to numerous foundations, and as a result of one such request, Joseph E. Johnson, president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, invited Dodd to send a committee staffer to Carnegie's headquarters in New York City to examine the minutes of the meetings of the endowment's trustees. Now, this is Carnegie we're talking about, the one I always go after. These minutes had long since been stored away in a warehouse, and obviously Johnson, who was a close friend of former Carnegie president and Soviet spy, Alger Hiss, had no idea what was in them. Don't forget, Alger Hiss headed up the UN in San Francisco. He was the head of the whole thing, world government. The, the minutes reveal that in 1910, the Carnegie trustees asked themselves this question, Colin, 
Quote, is there any way known to man more effective than war to so alter the life of an entire people? End quote. This is in the minutes. For, for a year, the trustees sought an effective, peaceful method to alter the life of an entire people. But ultimately, they concluded that war was the most effective way to change people. Oh, World War One, horrible. Oh God! I mean, made every other war look like nothing. Consequently, the trustees of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace next asked themselves, "Quote: How do we re-involve the United States in a war?" And they answered, "Quote: We must control the diplomatic machinery of the United States by first gaining control of the State Department." Now, don't forget, this is 1910. Norm Dodd said that the trustees' minutes reinforced what the Reese Committee had uncovered elsewhere about the Carnegie Endowment, that it had already become a powerful policy-making force inside the State Department. During those early years of the Carnegie Endowment, war clouds were already forming over Europe, and the opportunity for the enactment of their plan was drawing near. History proved that World War I did indeed have an enormous impact on the American people. For the first time in our history, large numbers of wives and mothers had to leave the home to work in war factories, thus effectively eroding women's historic role in the heart of the family. The sanctity of the family itself was placed in jeopardy. Life in America was so thoroughly changed that according to Norman Dodd, quote, the trustees had the brashness to congratulate themselves on the wisdom and the validity of their original decisions, end quote. They sent a confidential message to President Wilson, insisting that the war not be ended too quickly. Carnegie trustee Cleveland Dodge, one of Wilson's financial supporters, had direct access to the president, and as did Ella Hugh Root, endowment president from 1910 to 1925. After the war, the Carnegie Endowment trustees reasoned that if they could get control, here we go, of education in the United States, they would be able to prevent a return to the way of life as it had been prior to the war. And they recruited the Rockefeller Foundation to assist in such a monumental task. According to Dodd, quote, they divided the task in parts, giving to the Rockefeller Foundation the responsibility of altering education as it pertains to domestic subjects. That was the, the Southern Education Board they set up. But Carnegie retained the task of altering our education in foreign affairs and about international relations. That would be UNESCO, UN, all that stuff. The foundations decided that the most effective method of achieving this goal would be to alter American history. So they awarded grants, fellowships, and scholarships to those professors and historians who would rewrite American history and promote one worldism, humanism, and socialism. By the early 30s, the well-laid plans of the Foundation trustees had reached fruition, and a Reese Committee staff report concluded, one, that there had indeed been a non-bloody revolution in America between 1933 and 1936, two, that a certain few foundations had funded efforts to change the beliefs of the American people through education and propaganda, and three, that these revolutionary changes had been accepted without resistance. To demonstrate how thoroughly American opinion had been changed according to the plan of the foundations, we cite the following historical example. At the end of World War I, Woodrow Wilson and his shadowy alter ego, Colonel Edward M. House, 
tried to sell the U.S. Senate and the American people on the idea of the League of Nations. This was, of course, the first concerted international effort towards a one-world government. Wilson and House failed in their mission, but a generation later, after another great war and much re-education via college international relations clubs, international studies, educational grants, and the like, the Senate and the people readily accepted membership in the United Nations. Roosevelt's foreign policy advisor, Alger Hiss, helped write the UN Charter in which the Soviet Union was given three votes in the General Assembly and the United States only one. And then before his perjury conviction for lying, that's his, about his Soviet espionage activities, he went on to become president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Chairman Reese expressed justifiable rage when he described what was happening as a diabolical conspiracy. The conspirators had left little to chant. Those congressional investigations of the early 50s into tax exempt foundations were mandated by the House of Representatives in a resolution stating, quote, the committee is authorized and directed to conduct a full and complete investigation to determine which of such foundations and organizations are using their resources for un-American and subversive activities for political purposes, propaganda, or attempts to influence legislation. Now, folks, I want to tell you, the 3,000 pages of testimony with committee hearings is at my son's website, americandeception.com. The person I bought the hearings from, the transcript, was offered 20 years ago any amount of money for that 3,000 pages. The foundations wanted it back. It was the only copy left available. And he would not sell it to them. So my friend sold it to me. My friend knew Norman Dodd very well. He sold it to me for $2,000, which is really cheap. Right? A dollar a page. He'd been offered any amount. They said, we'll pay you anything. You name it. Anything. We want that copy. So it's now on the web for everybody to read. All right. Now we'll continue. The congressional investigations. Right. To determine which of such foundations and organizations are using their resources for un-American and subversive activities for political purposes, propaganda, or attempts to influence legislation. The tax exempt status granted to foundations by the Congress of the United States is a special and powerful privilege subsidized by the American taxpayer. Therefore, Congress has not only the authority, but also the obligation to investigate how tax exempt funds are spent. This should be the next investigation. Ron Paul should do this one after the Federal Reserve. The Ford Foundation, largest of all the foundations, balked when it received a preliminary questionnaire from the Reese Committee. H. Rowan Gaither, president of the multi-billion dollar foundation, summoned committee research director Dodd to foundation offices in New York City. At the meeting, Gaither asked, Mr. Dodd, we invited you to come here because we thought that perhaps off the record, you see, that's why it's not in the transcript of the hearings, what I'm reading you now. This was off the record in the office in New York City. Uh, we invited you here because we thought that perhaps off the record, you would be kind enough to tell us why the Congress is interested in the operations of foundations such as ours. Gaither answered his own rhetorical question with a startling admission. Mr. Dodd, all of us here at the policy-making level of the foundation have at one time or another served in the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA, or the European Economic Administration, operating under directives from 
the White House. We operate under those same directives. The substance of the directives under which we operate is that we should use our grant-making power to so alter life in the United States that we can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union, end quote. Stunned, Dodd finally replied, quote, why don't you tell the American people what you just told me? And you could save the taxpayers thousands of dollars set aside for this investigation. Gaither responded, Mr. Dodd, we wouldn't think of doing that. In public, of course, Gaither never admitted what he had revealed in private. However, on numerous public occasions, Norman Dodd repeated what Gaither had said and was neither sued by Gaither nor challenged by the Ford Foundation. The latest article that I've written uh, with Debbie Miwa, a wonderful researcher, a magnificent person and brilliant, uh, did all the graphics and formatting and a lot of her own research as well on change agents and uh, how, they, how they brought Americans to have a totally different mindset using all the sensitivity training on Debbie has fantastic research of hers is in that article. As well as uh, at the end of writing it, we came across extraordinary uh, quotes from C.S. Lewis, who, who points out that if you substitute workforce training for education, that's the end of civilization. It's the end of the human being as, a, as an empty opposed to being an animal. It's the end of the human soul. It's the end of the conscience. And we have all of the evidence from educators and change agents articles saying that the computer is fantastic for changing values. An educator with the World Institute for Computer Assistance Instruction, his name is Dustin Houston, where he talks about, won't it be wonderful when a child in the smallest school, most remote area, in the country can have uh, the uh, curriculum developed by the world's finest psychologist and nobody can get between that child and the curriculum. Parents, wake up. That means you, parents, you can't get between the child and that curriculum. You can't control anything anymore. You've lost it. This is going in right now. And they say this works too. What works? I always wondered when I saw this stuff titled What Works in the U.S. Department of Ed and I didn't pay too much attention. And one day I picked it up, something, and what works? Yeah, dog training works. If you reinforce, if you give rewards and all. And mind you folks, the rewards are being passed out galore all over our country now, not just in education. In my former town of Bath, the police, the community-oriented policing system, the police are giving rewards to citizens who do good deeds. They give them a little medal. They see them say, help an older lady across the street who has groceries. The police determine what the good deed is. She gets a medal. That's a reward. That's conditioning. That's offering conditioning. You can end up with a society that never does anything for the sake of it being right. And they're never going to take a stand against anything unless it's approved by the government. So that is the re- that's going to be the result of operant conditioning. It's throughout our, our community right now. The Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, when he was in Chicago, the Chicago schools, he even recommended paying students for good grades. Now, that's why teachers are up in arms about 
merit pay, performance-based pay. That's the same thing. They're going to pay the teachers for students getting good test scores. Now, wait a minute. First of all, you might think that sounds good. No, you got to ask yourself, what's the test? It's hard to believe that anybody would deliberately do this to children, but they are. They're evil people, and their agenda has been evil ever since this book was written. This is it, Proofs of a Conspiracy by John Robeson, great Scottish scholar back in 1798. He was a Scottish Freemason, and he went to France and studied, you know, French Orient masonry, and was so shocked by what he saw, it was so much worse than the Scottish Rite, that he went back and wrote that book, which he actually did give a copy to George Washington. That book is like a global education textbook being used in the American schools right now. It talks about 1798, this is after the French Revolution, you know, get rid of royalty, get rid of religion, get rid of the family, that's basically what's in the book, huh? Uh, Actually, uh, they talk about dropping borders. Hmm? Sounds just like a global ed curriculum. Uh, turning the children against their parents. Uh, it's pure communism. Uh, that's why I say that now, uh, basically, the only thing that we can do, certainly with education, which is being turned into nothing but uh, corporate uh, school-to-work agenda, uh, using the Soviet Cuban polytech system where they pull the children out send them over to the cigar factory, you know, at noon to learn how to make cigars. The same thing here. That's being put in. It's been in the works for 30 years. It's, the nail is going to pop it right now. It's coming out of Europe. It's, it's the program that's going to Maine right now. It's called Reinventing Education. Uh, Di Lorenzo, this is all in my article, The Death of Free Will. Uh, all of this documentation about the final nail in the coffin, which will be school to work across the board uh, for corporate global corporate profits. Our children are nothing but human resources and guinea pigs to be trained like animals. Animal training using Pavlov, Skinner, uh, all of which was brought into the United States by, we'll get on to the order at Skull and Bones. soon to prisonplanet.tv. Skull and Bones, The Order at Yale, 15 of them selected out of Virginia Park. They paid Wall Street, Finance, Hitler, Finance, Stalin, creating communism, which is what they did. That's all very bad, and Skull and Bones is all involved in that with the order. They concerned the uh, build-up of the three types of socialism, uh, Bolshevik socialism in Russia, um, what we might call welfare socialism in the United States, and uh, Hitlerian or national socialism. And each book examines the financing and the contributions made by Wall Street by international bankers to, that, to the development of that specific form of socialism. It also was involved in changing the American education system from a classical academic brain-oriented thinking, destroying that, and imposing uh, animal training methods, which Skull and Bones was deeply involved, and I think I would just say the only entity at that time deeply involved, and managed to bring that wretched system of 
of awkward conditioning, Pavlov Skinner, whatever you want to call it, animal training, out of the laboratory in Leipzig, Germany, Wilhelm Wundt, and get it adopted by leading American educators. Motivation and reward are crucial factors in learning. A motivated animal will learn any response which occurs and is promptly followed by a reduction in the strength of the drop. My father and grandfather were members of the order. Skull and Bones was put together by William Russell in 1830, Secret Society at Yale University. And uh, the connections with Germany are pretty extensive. You know, the, the, the Illuminati, I think, we've got the, I think there's a lot of research out there that I haven't even read that is there that does connect it with the Illuminati. And the Illuminati, of course, is Bavarian Marxist society based on getting, destroying the family, destroying the church, which at that time was Catholicism, uh, destroying... Uh, Religion was destroying national entities, boundaries. Uh, no more. I, I have, you know, the proofs and conspiracy by Robeson, an original copy of that, and it says right in there, you know, where the uh, order, it's interesting, the order, right? And the goal was to, just as I said, down with the family, down with the royalty. At that time, governments were royalty, and, and they were religious. That was Western European, right? Uh, down with uh, nationalism, get rid of countries, drop borders, drop borders. I mean, and people think that that's new? The Illuminati order, this is really, this is skull and bones. The Illuminati order documents show that Raphael... And the Illuminati is identified as the same Professor Carl Casimir Wundt. This is fascinating. Kirchenrath Carl Casimir Wundt, the one we're talking about, was professor at Heidelberg University in the history and geography of Baden, this town, and pastor of the church at Weiblingen, a small neighborhood town. So Wundt was connected with the Illuminati, his grandfather. Well, this is the background of Wilhelm Maximilian Wundt, who really trained the American educators in the behavioral psychology, stimulus response uh, training, parts of uh, Skinner opera conditioning, bells, whistles, all that stuff, which does not teach, it trains for the, global, for the workforce. Now, this was uh, the order at Yale was directly connected with Wilhelm Wundt. They sent educators over there to study under Wundt. Stanley Hall was the first one to go. This is so important, this stuff here. The Hegelian influence on Hall between 1870 and 1882, a span of 12 months, Hall, an American, there's a lot of information on him here too, but I won't go into it, he was connected with Skull and Bones prior to going over. They probably sent him over. Spent six years in Germany. And he says, I do not know of any other, this is Hall talking, any other American student of these subjects. 
philosophy and psychology, who came into even the slight personal contact that was my fortune to enjoy with Hartman and Fechner. They were psychologists over there as well. Nor of any psychologist who had the experience of attempting experimental work with Helmholtz. And I think I was the first American pupil of Wundt. Now, Wundt is the one we're dealing with, Wilhelm Wundt from Germany. He had the first laboratory. And people think that American psychology and all was uh, the psychologist studied under Pavlov, but Pavlov was the first. No. Pavlov, interestingly enough, studied under Wilhelm Wundt in Leipzig. The 12 years included in this span as an American people of Wundt, more than any other equal period, marked and gave direction to modern psychology. Wilhelm Wundt, 1832 to 1920, professor of philosophy at University of Leipzig, was undoubtedly the major influence on G. Stanley Hall, who was subsequently trained in all the other, Thorndike, Dewey, and all of them, okay? And he was sent over Hall. It appears that he had a lot of connections with the order at Yale, and that's why he ultimately ended up going to Leipzig. Uh, modern education practice stems from Hegelian social theory combined with the experimental psychology of Wilhelm Wundt. So Hegelian theory, you know, creates a problem, people scream, impose a solution type of thing. And no right, no wrong, too. Whereas Karl Marx and von Bismarck applied Hegelian theory to the political field, it was Wilhelm Wundt, influenced by Johann Herbart, who applied Hegel the Hegelian dialectic, to education, which in turn was picked up by Hall and John Dewey, and modern educational theorists in the United States. If that's to create the problem, and people scream and pose a solution. That's the, Hegel, that's the Hegel. Wundt is the animal training method that bypasses the brain. Wundt is important in the history of American education for the following reasons. He established in 1875 the world's first laboratory in experimental psychology to measure individual responses to stimulate. Two, Wundt believed that man is only the summation of his experience and the stimuli that bear upon him. It follows from this that for one, man has no self-will, no self-determination. Man is in effect only the captive of his experiences, a pawn needing guidance. Three, Students from Europe and the United States came to Leipzig to learn from Wundt the new science of experimental psychology. These students returned to their homelands to found schools of education or departments of psychology and trained hundreds of PhDs in the new field of psychology. The core of our problem is that Wundt's work was based on Hegelian philosophical theory and reflected the Hegelian view of the individual as a valueless cog in the state, a view expanded by one to include man as nothing more than an animal influenced solely by daily experiences. This Wundian view of the world was brought back from Leipzig to the United States by G. Stanley Hall and other Americans and went through what is known among psychologists as the Americanization of Wundt. Although Hall was primarily a psychologist and teacher, his political views were partially Marxist, as Hall himself writes. 
quote, I had wrestled with Karl Marx and, and half accepted what I understood of him. Confessions. And don't forget Karl Marx, he is the Communist Manifesto is basically White House. Important. So this is really a very, this is a very fine chapter out of Sutton's book, America's Secret Establishment. How the, this is a chapter, how the order controls education. And I want to point out that nobody but Sutton in the writings on the order has ever really dealt with education. Sutton saw the importance. I mean, he'd been doing all the work on, our, you know, aids of the Soviet Union on technology and all for the Hoover Institute. Um, but he really, uh, he's the only one who ever connected the order with education. It's, yeah, you know, even this great book uh, that we've all, that, that Sutton likes the connection, this great book, uh, I don't believe that Paoli Leone understood the connection with the order either. He wrote about Wundt, fantastic little book. You couldn't get it. You know, the viewers can get this book. I think it's, you know, there are a few very important books on education. I'd say that this is the number one book on education that's ever been written, this little book. And I think uh, Anthony Sutton agreed because he got a lot of his work in, in his book on the order from the likes the connection as well. If we want to start with the condition of the average American right now, uh, who has been conditioned uh, by the television and in the schools and pretty much in daily life, you know, with the community councils and all, it goes away from the individual. Everything is to get, well, John Dewey said it, we have to get rid of the individualism. Everything goes towards the collective, the group. And forever since the early 60s or 50s, they've had the training sessions going on. We started in Bethel, Maine, National Training Lab, to do uh, sensitivity training to bring people together in groups, and they all spill their guts about everything. And once you've done that, you're dependent on that person, right? Because they know everything about you. So this is the way you form the collective. It really is very interesting, the sensitivity training, how it works. And it says right in the original documents that it's Chinese communist thought control. Well, Americans have been exposed to this now, you know, since certainly since World War II. And they've become little collectivists, really groupies. They think that way. Anybody who thinks as an individual really is looked at uh, a scant, you know, strange person, you know, having an opinion that is opposite to what I've heard every night on the TV or in school or in college. Strange person, these individuals. So that's what we're looking at now. We we finally, uh, this is very interesting right now, I mean, talking about the Rockefeller Foundation, the General Education Board of Carnegie, you have, uh, this is a chart uh, showing that University of Chicago, the School of Education, which had John Dewey and Charles Judd were there. Columbia University Teachers College, John Dewey Thorndike, who had his pet chickens, he trained, James E. Russell, and uh, then James McKell at the, Dep- the Department of Psychology at Columbia. All of those, those were all funded, and Hopkins Medical School, 
by Rockefeller Foundation General Education Board and Carnegie Foundation. Now, when you think back to everything I've been talking about, the Carnegie conclusions and recommendations to change uh, the American education, 1934, to change American education from the standard, you know, classical education that we have, basically to outcomes they said, because Carnegie, after they wrote that nifty little blue book that outlines a socialist America using Carnegie's views, uh, they, uh, they had something called the eight-year study, the Carnegie Corporation, which uh, we didn't realize until I read something in, in educa- uh, the Education Commission of States used to have a, still does maybe, in Denver has a um, newsletter. And I was reading it one day, and at the bottom of the page, I just saw something that said, uh, OBE is simply the, because we were fighting OBE, Outcomes-Based Education, Performance-Based Education for Workforce Training, Performance, Performance. And I turned the page. And I said, it's just a, a rerun virtually of the Carnegie Corporation's eight-year study in the 1930s. And I went, what? And then we went and we got the whole eight-year study out of the University of Georgia library because the editor of my book lives in Athens, Georgia. And we got the eight-year study. And the eight-year study actually is what they're putting in right now. It's the no grade. It's removing the Carnegie unit, which requires the old Carnegie unit. You guys went through it in school. You know, we all did. Uh, four, uh, four years of math, four science, four English, four history, whatever, in order to graduate. And all of that has been removed now because the student is, is, not, being, is not focusing on intellectual endeavor. It's workforce training. And so they're taking those years away, and they're taking A, B, C, D grades away. They're taking kindergarten 1, 2, 3, through 12 away. And the whole thing is an open system where the child proceeds at his own pace and has his own test. He's not being compared against anybody else, no competition, because he is the cog in the wheel. He's being trained for the state and the corporation not for his own upward mobility. Forget classical education. That's what they're putting in right now. They're calling it Reinventing Schools Coalition. And interestingly enough, why I should be living in this small town of Dresden, Maine, where it's one of the pilots, one of the few in the country for it, I went over and I found out about it. Their whole goal was to turn education on its head into training which is exactly what they wanted to do, because if you take the Carnegie's little conclusions and recommendations for the social studies, forget social studies, okay? I don't know why they call it that, really. It was really conclusions and recommendations for the destruction of American education, that little book, by putting that new system in. And uh, the very people who signed off on their report, were involved in, in all of this, Columbia. Uh, George Counts, Rudd, Ballou, uh, you know, all the names. And, and so Carnegie, whereas you had uh, Hopkins and University of Chicago and all were putting in the method, Carnegie was advocating the change of our formerly free market system to a planned economy, Soviet-style, through the schools. That's a little, black, little dark blue book, Conclusions and Recommendations. 
That is recommending a new form of government and economic system for the United States. And it clearly states in there the American people are going to get, have to get used to this because this is the new order. It is, is, uh, these barriers are breaking down all over the world. We've got to have a world system and all. You know, this is all, uh, I mean, this isn't direct quotes, but this is what the book tells you. And that the curriculum has to be completely revised from the old classical curriculum to focus on world government, basically. That's that little 1934 book. So at the same time, you had uh, Columbia University and, and Dewey and all of them. Uh, Dewey, had, you know, a lot of them had been to the Soviet Union, George Counts. And they were just saying, this is the most wonderful system, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, I think counts, we counted, or we counted, sort of at the end, you know, I think he realized, because things were getting pretty brutal in the 30s under Stalin, huh? It was pretty hard to defend the system. But anyway, the goal, I think, people will always ask, well, why on earth did Wall Street finance the Bolshevik Revolution? Why would they do that? Well, uh, I think they did it because Russia was a very, I don't think they did it because they were uh, atheists or one thing or the other. I mean, William Boyce Thompson, he was head of the first head of the Federal Reserve, I think. He, he put 100000 of his own money into Russia. I think it was all greed. Personally, I think that's why they initially started supporting the Bolshevik Revolution. I think they wanted to be in control of the natural resources. I'm talking about uh, America's Secret Establishment by Anthony Sutton. I knew Anthony Sutton. Uh, we met. Uh, we, we both were working on U.S. Soviet Soviet uh, policy. I used to be in the State Department, so I was interested in that too. But one day, you know, he said, "You know, I'm interested in." Uh, the influence of the order at Yale. And I said, oh, you are? And interestingly enough, I had just the day before received the copies of the membership in three or four little little books. They're, uh, actually, we can take pictures of them if you want. I have them. And he said, you have the membership list? And I said, yes. And he asked me to send it to him, and I did. He promised he'd get them back, which he did. And he told me, he said, Charlotte, I've been doing research for the Hoover Institute for several years on U.S. aid to the Soviet Union and wondering, what on earth are we doing? Why are we building up our enemies? I just can't, couldn't understand it. And he said, when I put all those names on the membership list that you had out on the dining room table, all of a sudden everything made sense. I saw the names of these very important people who were all involved in the defense contracts who were involved in education going way back, everything. I saw what they were doing. And that was when he became, you know, even, he really he really started focusing. And he wrote the book after he got the list. And I've always really liked, that. this is a really good quote here that I like to use, because not just because the fellow that he's quoting was a friend of my father's, sort of interesting, uh, but because it's so, it tells you exactly how important the order of skull and bones at Yale is. 
people say, oh, it's a little boys club, and they ignore it. They ignore the fact that John Kerry and George Bush were both running for president. You know, they didn't, I mean, isn't this sort of weird that out of a, an organization that has a maximum, I don't know how many, maybe 12,000 members that we, or less, you know, since, since its creation, I don't know how many there are, that we would end up in a country of, what, uh, uh, how many million are we? Uh, having having two people running for president who are for, out of Yale, the order of skull and bones? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. So anyway, this is a quote uh, that he has. Uh, this is from F.O. Matheson, who was skull and bones, 1923, and my father was too, uh, to Donald Ogden Stewart, skull and bones, 1916, an older guy. In regard to... Matheson, they called him Maddie, Maddie's upcoming appearance before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. So he's writing to his other Skull and Bones buddy, you know, soothing his concerns and saying, don't, you know, don't worry, we'll, we'll make it, we're going to get by here, you know, we're going to get our agenda in, basically. So Matheson says, quote, as long as we have somebody from Bones, himself, right, who can bring pressure on the committee, I should think we'll be all right. So that's a very important quote. Now, Sutton goes on here and he says, for over 170 years, these people have met in secret. From out of their initiates come presidents, senators, judges, cabinet secretaries, and plenty of spooks. They are titans of finance and industry, and they have just recently installed a third skull in Bones President of the United States, George Jr., right? George W. Bush's secret name is temporary. <laughs> his father, George H. W. Bush's phone's name is Magog. And his grandfather, Prescott Sheldon Bush, stole for the order one of their prized possessions, Geronimo Skull. But the order of Skull and Bones secrets have always been faced with a press of which much they owned. They owned, and that's why I think earlier you saw in this video I mentioned that, uh, or maybe I didn't. I have been writing letters to the press since 1975 that, with a direct quote from a communist that regionalism is communism. And I was, I've had other pu- articles published, but they would never go near that. Either they would take that quote out, except the quote from a communist writer from the Daily World, writing for their own journal, The Daily World. And so when you talk about the control of the press, it's complete, the, the major media. I don't have to tell you folks that probably, but anyway. All right, now, Skull and Bones, uh, Bonesman, uh, here's a little list. Time, Life, Fortunes, Henry Luce, Newsweek's E. Roland, Bunny Harriman, Harriman, right? Uh, Cowles Communications, Alfred Cowles, National Review's William Buckley, boy, he took us to the cleaners, didn't he? Atlantic Monthly's R.W. Davenport, I guess Buckley was the one that managed to get the, the conservatives in line, so they're supporting a planned economy and all, right? He said that he, he said that John Kenneth Galbraith was one of his best friends and he admired him, so, huh? Um, oh, yes, yes, went after the Berkshires. He did terrible things, Buckley. Uh, Atlantic Monthly's Davenport, and among others, uh, if the order uh, is mentioned in the establishment press at all, Bones is defined as just a staid wayside for students. 
its glory faded. Uh, this book is extremely important. Uh, you can go on the internet to get it. You said Alex has got it, is that right? Uh, you're right. Anthony Sutton was educated at universities of London, Gottingen, and California. While research fellow at the prestigious Hoover Institute, he produced a monumental three-volume series, Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development. Other books include The Best Enemy Money Can Buy, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, Wall Street and Hitler, and many others. All right, this is a picture of my grandfather, Samuel Clifton Thompson, born in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. And this is taken, this picture is taken just before he went out to South Africa as a mining engineer to open up the gold mines in South Africa. I might point out that he was uh, the first member in the family uh, from the order of Skull and Bones. Uh, and uh, you'll be seeing later, you're going to see a picture of uh, Grandpa and my father is coming up. Okay? And he lived out there from around 1897 and was there during the Boer War. And uh, they returned in 19... Uh, the breakout of the first World War One. My father was born in South Africa, obviously. And uh, my grandfather met a lovely gal from South from Australia. That was my grandmother. And uh, she she had come, this is a very interesting story. She had come over with her father and twelve siblings on a sailing ship from Australia to Cape Town. Uh, my great grandfather from Australia. Uh, had emigrated from England and uh, was the clerk of the works or something in Melbourne, Australia. And they had all the children. And can you imagine traveling on a sailing ship back in 1895 or something uh, with all those children? And anyway, my grandfather somehow met, we don't know how, my grandmother. And they were married in Johannesburg in 1902. And he was a member of the order. Yale, and he's very close to Sir A. Bailey and some of the Fabian Socialists. I don't really know I, what role he had in the activities of the order, but I would imagine some, because it was pretty big time gold mining, and he was very instrumental in opening up the mines there. So that's Grandpa Thompson. Here is a picture of the same Grandpa a little bit later with my father and my sister, Victoria. And uh, that's Grandpa. He's uh, being very grandfatherly. This is probably around 1930, this picture. And that's my dad uh, holding on to my sister, my dad Clifton, who subsequently was tapped for the order in, uh, for his class at Yale. And uh, with Grandpa, uh, the one that I spoke to you about, uh, who was the mining engineer that went from Pennsylvania to South Africa to open the gold mines in the late 1800s. This is an interesting picture here, which shows, um, I think that these are, this, is all, this looks like a bunch of skull and bones friends. I do believe. I'm going to show you the picture, and then I will identify a bit for you. Uh, the one in the front row um, is Charles Spofford. 
and then we have my father. I'll explain a little bit. It's difficult to hold this up, but the, the one in the front row in the middle is Charles Spofford, uh, a very close friend of my father's, and I, I really like Charles Spofford a lot. He ended up being uh, the legal counsel from Davis Polk, Wardwell, Underwood and Kendall, to for the Suez Canal Company and many, many other uh, high, high positions. He rose to the top, getting all sorts of honorary medals from foreign governments in Europe and everywhere, and uh, Council on Foreign Relations, and uh, a lawyer, and a very, very decent, nice man. He close to my father. Uh, he died about 25 years ago, I guess. Interesting man. He was born in Connecticut, in uh, California, I believe. And unlike the other Bones uh, characters that were in that class, friends of my father's, uh, he had not been to prep school, one of the fancy prep schools on the East Coast. He, he went to public school in California, which I do believe they must have had extremely good public schools back then because Chuck Spofford was quite a scholar. And he was a, a very good musician. And uh, very high up he became after World War II, which he served in, in Europe uh, as a lieutenant or something. After he got out, he was promoted way high up to a, one of the top positions in NATO, North American Treaty Organization, and went on to be very influential in diplomatic circles. This is coming from being a boy in the public school system, uh, in California, uh, rising to just really the highest heights imaginable. So that's Chuck. The other members that are list, are shown there are uh, close friends of my father's, Rebel McCallum and uh, Fred Haynes, I think. I'm not going to tell you where they all are. My father is in the picture somewhere there in the second row, I think. And Edwin Blair, who uh, was called Mr. Yale always because he uh, – he, uh, he, uh, was a great fundraiser for Yale. Um, so it was Mr. Yale. He was also the uh, gentleman that uh, invited my dad to go out to Bosnia and Grove for uh, one week or whatever it was. Uh, that It was through Edwin Blair that my father did go out there. And he, when he returned, you know, he, uh, he wasn't terribly impressed with what was going on there. He said the food was excellent. The lectures were pretty good. Uh, everything was done very nicely, but he would never go back. Uh, so I'm making excuses for my dad because I don't think he was ever really um, very happy with the agenda, the Yale agenda, the orders agenda, although he stayed close to his friends. As you can see in this picture, they're all having a very good time on someone's boat or on the dock somewhere. the skull and bones grandfather clock these clocks were given to members of the order when they got married and my father uh, was married in 1927 I believe and uh, he, he ordered the clock from a clockmaker in South Carolina and the I think that the order paid pays for the clock and uh, it was a gift. And all of them receive a, a clock when they get married. I believe that's the case. And uh, we had it in our house from the time I was born, of course. And I remember it best 
because it's so mellow. And I would, as a young child, you know, waiting for Santa Claus to arrive, go to bed at night, and the clock would, you know, go off at every hour. And my mom and dad, of course, were putting things under the tree and giving Santa Claus his peanut butter sandwich and banana. And I was sleeping and listening to the clock. And then finally around, you know, five, it strikes five, then six. And I'd know, well, I I can get up now. And I'd run down, and Santa Claus had been there, and the sandwich had been eaten, and the clock would strike 6.30, and then everybody would have to come down and deal with me. So I, I just have great memories of the clock. And what, what the significance is with the clock, uh, Dad used to always say, he was very firm about that. He never told us why, but don't ever let the clock wind down. Keep the clock wound sharp. And uh, always keep it five minutes ahead. And what that means, maybe it means they're five minutes ahead of everybody. The order has to keep five minutes ahead of all of us. Uh, and don't let it wind down, because if you did that, they'd be getting five or ten minutes behind or more. And as a member of the family, you're, you never talk about the order. My father never discussed anything about, about the order of any significance, really. Uh, although, as, as we said earlier on, he very, most of his friends were very close. Uh, very close friends were the order, and all of them, all the ushers in his wedding were skull and bones, uh, the order, and friends all the way through life. Uh, but that had nothing to do with his own personal beliefs and all. He he, he did not, uh, he was not involved in any major um, political decisions affecting our country or our schools or anything. He was a wonderful mayor of several towns, a very strict constitutionalist, which certainly doesn't go along with what the order stands for. I mean, he would really cause trouble on the board if anybody deviated from the Constitution. So that's just a little bit of a defense of, of a member of the order, my dad. And uh, as you heard earlier on, you know, before he died, he, he did say that uh, he would help me if he could, if he had longer arrived. So uh, hopefully there are more members who come to that conclusion. And maybe someday we won't have a problem with the order. I hope that the order doesn't continue causing all of us the problems that it's caused in the past, so especially in education. Now, uh, we're going to get into the books. The books are, books were originally, they'd never published the list of members in book form before. At least that's what my father told me. One day when he was ill, this is the catalog of the membership of living members, Volume 1, I think it's around 1978 is the date on this. Well, that one's 1977. Let's take a look at this. Uh, oh, no, see, this is October 1983. This is what happened. A dad, I was taking care of my father. He was dying of cancer in New Jersey, and my sister and I would rotate, go down there. We didn't want to put him in a nursing home. So... Uh, one day, it was pretty close to the end of his life, uh, the mail brought these two books in the mail, which are, one is this one, Volume 1, The Living Members, the catalog of the living members as of 1983. And this is 
the catalog of all the members as of May 1977. This is the living and the dead. As of May 1977. So this is really the updated one right here. Anyway, I was opening the mail because my father wasn't well. I was taking care of all the business things, uh, mail correspondence, and, and these arrived. And so I took them into Dad, and he said, God, he said, they're getting pretty fancy up there in New Haven. You know, he said, what are you doing? Uh, never been in book form before. And that was his little comment. And so I said, well, it is, you know. So uh, we, uh, around that time, I was working with Anthony Sutton on something because I was always very interested in U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union. And he was, had done such remarkable work, aside from his great book, which came out subsequently on the order. But his work at the Hoover Institute uh, in regard to United States uh, transfer of technology and all sorts of uh, information uh, and money, et cetera, to the Soviet Union from the time of the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. And so Sutton was very highly respected in that field. And, and he he told me, we just was a fluke, really, that he happened to call right at the time when the books had arrived because he said he couldn't understand what it was all about. And I said, well, you may be interested, I think, you know, in, in the order at Yale. And uh, he said, I am. He said, I am interested in that. He said, I, I don't understand the connection. And I, I told him that I had the list in book form. And he said, you do? And I said, yeah. And he said, would you um, mind lending them to me? And he said, I'll get them right back to you, I promise. And I believed him. And I said them, and he did get them back. And he called me, and he said, uh, Charlotte, with all the research I've done through the years on USA to the Soviet Union and every imaginable aspect, once I got these lists copied, he went to a copying place to get, get it done. He must have done a pretty good job because they're still in good shape. Uh, I put them down on the dining room table, and I looked, and all of a sudden, I knew I, I had found what I was looking for. I would found the names of the people involved in, in the foreign, foreign affairs of the United States, especially in the transfer of uh, secrets and weapons, et cetera, and nuclear stuff uh, to the Soviet Union, and... Uh, banking as, as well as banking, and he said, and he also mentioned Hitler. He said, I saw the movers and the shakers, and it became very clear to me that this one organization was, if not totally responsible, almost all, 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 completely, you know, really up there in responsibility for American foreign policy and economic policy. And so, and then subsequently, uh, we found out education policy. I didn't know that uh, at that time that Sutton was that deep into do, doing the research on education. I think he did the best job on education research of anybody I can possibly think of uh, using, and I'll show you in a minute, uh, the incredible research done by, uh, in the Leipzig Connection by Lance Leone, The Leipzig Connection. I'll show you a picture of that book later. 
something to use that. I used it. And uh, anyway, that is the history of these little these little black books, which he returned to me. And he was a very great gentleman. He he said I I really didn't ask him to keep my name private, but uh, he decided on his own uh, not to let anybody know uh, where he got them from. And evidently, when uh, after my father died, uh, he he. Uh, he did, I guess, tell somebody, or maybe he didn't ever tell anybody. I, well, I'm not quite sure. I told people I didn't really care. You know? But I do want to point out right here, at the end of my father's uh, illness, when he, before he died, because he had heard me discussing foreign affairs and, and education, especially with Phyllis Schlafly, who was putting together the book uh, Child Abuse in the Classroom, which is a great book for parents out there watching if they want to really find out all about all truly, you know, documented programs that were used in the schools between 1965 and 1985 when we had the Protection of Human Rights Amendment hearings. The the documentation is in that book, Child Abuse in the Classroom, which is at AmericanDeception.com, a marvelous book. And Phyllis and I, at this time, when I was taking care of my dad in 1984, we're talking on the phone constantly about what was going on with global education, uh, all the horrible values-destroying programs, role-playing, psychodrama, you, the worst stuff, death education, survival games where the kids have to decide who's going to be uh, allowed in the lifeboat and who isn't, depending on what your category is in life. Uh, this stuff, My father was listening from the other room because we had, we had him downstairs in the room next to the kitchen so we could take care of him. And so he must have had some, I mean, I think I brainwashed him. <laughs> I think I brainwashed my father at the end of his life because a week before he died, he looked at me. First of all, I said, did he want to read the New York Times? He was not, he really was at the point where he didn't read much. And he did, he, he, I gave it to him. He just threw it on the floor. He's lying in bed it on the floor and he said, you know, if I had more time, I'd help you. So that was uh, really wonderful, you know, that uh, at least I feel at the end of his life, uh, at least he understood his daughter. <laughs> that was nice to know. Um, he used to say to me, Char, you're a very good writer, but I don't know whether I like what you write about. And I thought, well, that's, that's a compliment from you. You're a good writer, too, and a speaker. He was always a very fine speaker. But uh, I thought, okay, I've come a long way. Uh, he thought I was a good writer, didn't like what I was writing about or what I was saying. And then finally he said, you know, if he had more time, he'd help me. So that, so you can say that, with, I'm not making excuses for Skull and Bones members, but you can say that a good percentage of each class is really quite innocuous even though they may still go to the island, you know, where they have the, the camping and all that, and Dad did that, and even though they may be bound to vote for the, the uh, Skull and Bones candidate, like my father always voted for Bush, and my mother was a Southern conservative who would vote for Barry Goldwater or make a mistake like I did and vote for Reagan. So their votes always canceled one another out because Dad would have voted Skull and Bones candidate, no matter what. Maybe they take a pledge or something. I don't know. Let's go for that. Uh, 
Thompson. I think I am even mentioned in this evil little book. Yes, I am. Thompson, 1924. There's Thompson. There's Thompson in 1924, and you will see there where he was born and uh, where he went to college. He was married to my mother, but he was mayor of several towns. He was a very civic-minded person, and everybody loved him. He always got elected. The most generous person on earth that ever existed. If anybody had a problem, you know, he'd be right in on that, offering to help out no matter what. And a, he was a vestry man at the Episcopal Church. And uh, I don't know what else Dad was, except he was the order at Yale. <laughs> anyway, it, it, did you get that picture okay? I, did. I can even see your name. Oh, good. So it says, uh, 1924, law retired, born January 3rd, 1903, Johannesburg, South Africa, where he resided, Mosley Road, Far Hills, New Jersey, worked at Appleton Rice and Terror in New York, council and director, Siva Corporation, 4664, Mayor, Sands Point, New York, 4047, member, Township Committee, Menden, New Jersey, 61 to 71, married June 4, 1927, Charlotte Dyer, uh, and daughter, Victoria Romig, and Charlotte, my goodness, my name is in the skull and bones little black book of members. I didn't even know that, huh? Well, good for you, Charlotte. I wonder I wonder what they say about me. Oh, they're so all to themselves. They probably don't even know about me. They probably don't even know about Dad anymore. So now we have... Um, Oh, this is an interesting one here. Oh, look at all these bushes. Bush, 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 bush. How about it? Let me give you it. There we are. Look. Bush, 1948. George Herbert Walker. Well, oh, my representative to the UN, chairman of the Republic. This is a good one. George Herbert Walker. Born in that, you know, he must have, graduated in 1948, right? And uh, born 1924 in Milton, Massachusetts, director of CIA, Washington, D.C., residence in Washington, and president and chairman Zapata Offshore Company, 58 to 66, member of U.S. Congress, 6770, U.S. permanent rep to the United Nations, ambassador, 71 to 72, Chairman, Republican National Committee, 73-74, boy, he doesn't give up, does he? Chief U.S. Liaison Office, Peking People's Republic of China, 74-75, Lieutenant, Junior Grade, U.S. Navy, 42-45, three Air Medals, married January 6th to Barbara, 1945, children, George W., 1968, John E., Neil M., Marvin T., and Dorothy. Yep, okay. Then we have, gosh, George Jr., 1968, born, I mean, 19, he was, that was a class. He was born in 1946 in New Haven, resides in Houston, Texas. That's all they have for him. Like, oh, this is an old book, see? Yeah, okay. Then James, I never knew about James, did you? Yeah, he's the first. Well, I've heard of that. Okay. 
And I knew about the girl, yeah, Bush, 1953, Jonathan. Oh, I knew about him. He used to leave his, park his car in our garden in Camden before he would go out on sailing trips. Somehow we, we must have met him. He was very nice, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, he'd, stay, he'd be gone for about a month on the island, whatever island, a vinyl heaven or one of them, and he would leave his car in our garage or in our parking lot. And I, he was a rather nice guy. And then we have Prescott. In 1917, uh, that's the year for him. That's important. He was born in 1895, Columbus, Ohio. Died in uh, October 8, 1972, New York, New York. Greenwich, Greenwich, Connecticut, Republican Town Meeting, 32 to 52, moderator. Yale Corporation, 44 to 58, U.S. Senator, from Connecticut, 52 to 63, a long time. Formerly partner of Brown Brothers Harriman, see, got all that. And in August 6, 1921, Dorothy Walker, married Dorothy Walker, and their children were George, Jonathan, William, and Nancy. Okay, uh, that's that. That's the bushes. We could go through a lot of people. You know what? Let's let's just take a look here. We're in the let's take a look at Buckley, huh? The great leader of the conservative movement, huh? Buckley, William Frank. He graduated in 1950. This is the the guy that was put up there as a, a good, you know, a friend of the socialist economist. What's his name? The really socialist economist. I don't know his name. They were always such good friends. I always wondered how that could be. No. Um, I can't remember right now, but he's very well known. Anyway, Buckley. Buckley. Gosh, there are a lot of Buckleys. There's Christopher Taylor, New York City author, editor, journalist. I wonder if he's related. Chief speechwriter, the vice president of the United States. Buckley. Fergus Reed writing. Paris, France, novelist and lecturer. They're all in in media, right? It could well be they're related, huh? Then we have James. That he was Bill Buckley's brother. A pretty good guy, I believe. Um, he was president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, in Munich, West Germany. What a joke those places were. They really they led the uh, the poor Hungarians, you know, we, we, we let Hungary right, go down right down the tube. We, we, we did all the broadcasting to get them to revolt. We radio for Europe, and then they revolted, and then the Soviets struck in 1956, I guess, and the Hungarian Revolution. Horrible. So that's what Radio for Europe did. Well, it must have done some good things. Okay. He was U.S. Senator from New York uh, in the Navy. Married. He was he was U.S. Senator from New York for a very short time, and I wondered why. He went in and he never ran again. This is his brother. Okay, now here we got William Frank Buckley, uh, born in 1925. Nas- President National Review. Um, he was associate editor of American Mercury, which you see. So he was really. That was very good. That was a really true blue, wonderful conservative magazine that he was editor of. That's rather interesting. He went in there early to, you know, do damage everywhere, I guess. 
uh, Editor-in-Chief, National Review, Syndicated Columnist, TVO's Firing Line, Chairman of the Board, Star Broadcasting Group, author of several books, appointed by Nixon to five-member USIA Advisory Committee, 69, appointed by the President, public member of the U.S. delegation to, uh-oh, 28th General Assembly of the U.N., Host of PBS Great Performances Brides had revisited. Second Lieutenant U.S. Infantry. Well, that must have been tough. I don't know what was that, 44 to 46. Great, you know, let's see, nasty end of the war. Married to Patricia Taylor. Okay. No. <laughs> he certainly was. With Ward, what's his name, Norman? Maybe they don't put that in. Yeah, yeah. And here we got Frederick McGeorge Bundy, the one that's listed in the NEA's Cardinal Principles Pre-Planning Board. This is very important. So at the top, the NEA has all these characters, these rotten leftists, educators and government people, top skull and bones people. All right. There's McGeorge Bundy, and there is Frederick McGeorge Bundy. Isn't that interesting? So McGeorge Bundy's the one we want. His brother was the other one. That's something. Two brothers were the order at Yale. This is sort of fascinating stuff. And then William Bundy. All right, McGeorge Bundy. And remember that he was listed on the NEA's... uh, Cardinal Principles Revisited, 1976, which was the total international world government document, education for a world government, basically. He was listed with all the rotten educators, Theodore Sizer, oh, everyone you could imagine. And anyway, here we go. And Rockefeller, David Rockefeller, which makes one ask at the top of the NEA, how many teachers know that the NEA at the top is allied with the Rockefellers and the insiders and the establishment and the, and the very people that everybody will tell you the NEA abhors. So anyway, here we go. George Bundy, born 1919, professor of history, NYU, lived at 133 East J.E. Street, New York. They all have good addresses. Uh Lecturer, associate professor of government, dean of faculty, arts and sciences, 53 to 61 at Harvard. Arts and sciences, that's interesting, huh? Special assistant for national security affairs to President Kennedy and Johnson, 1961 to 66. President of the Ford Foundation, okay, Brown Gaither, 1966 to 79. He was 10 years after Gaither. He knew, same thing that Gaither told God. Captain A, 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 United States, 1942 to 1946. Can you imagine? They were really in massive wars and all. Uh, Maybe that's what caused them to be for world government oriented. Well, they learned it at the order at Yale, I guess. Um, Okay, nothing more of interest there. Married to Mary Lothrop, the children and all. And William Bundy, okay, this is another one. This is the other one that's important. Uh, journalism, born, uh, this has got to be his brother. Editor of Foreign Affairs, okay, CFR. Uh, 
uh, Yale Corporation, Covington Burling Law Firm. He's a very important one, this one. Um, Columnist Newsweek. Uh, oh, whoa. Staff Director, President's Commission on National Goals. That was a bad commission. Uh, Maureen Heaton covered that in her book. National Goals, all right. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, International Security Affairs. Uh, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs, 64 to 69. Major Army Signal Corps, August 41. They were all in the war. Legion of Merit, British MBE. Married to Mary Atchison. I wonder if it's Dean Atchison. Michael and Christopher. Okay, well, you know, really, these people are something else, aren't they? They are important. They are very important. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.